The following program was made possible by the generosity of those who have determined to hold fast to the true Roman Catholic religion, as expounded by the Roman Catholic Church before the disasters of Vatican II and the so-called New Mass. Welcome to What Catholics Believe. I'm your host, Thomas Nagley, and with me tonight is Father William Jenkins from the Society of St. Pius V and pastor of Immaculate Conception Church in Norwood, Ohio. Hello, Father. Good evening, Tom. How are you? Good, Father. How are you? Good. Oh, just fabulous, of course. Yeah, Thank good. you. Good. Well, not so fabulous that I've been answering all of the uh, all of the mail and all of the phone calls uh, I received, so I apologize to those who tried to be in contact with me, but I, I haven't forgotten you. Just please be patient. Okay, I will answer you even if I have to answer you from purgatory. <laughs> I'm not okay. quite serious about that. Of course, uh, that would take some special permission. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but, but I do intend to uh, to get back to our patient people who are trying to reach me. So. Mm-hmm. I think we could apply that to all of the uh, the emails in our that are sitting in our, our inbox as well. I know we have. I guess that's the other side of it. Too, yeah, right? quite the uh, yeah. quite the backlog there. But uh, mm-hmm. we're we're working through them slowly but surely and. Uh, Father, I thought we I get could... the message here is thanks to everyone there for their patience. Right? Yeah, definitely. I, I thought we could start tonight, though. Uh, we're, we're entering the Lenten season now, and it mm-hmm. seemed appropriate to talk about the Stations of the Cross. And we had one mm-hmm. viewer who, who emailed and wanted to know if you could kind of compare and contrast the traditional practice of the Stations of the Cross with the the changes that came in after the Second Vatican mm-hmm. Council and how mm-hmm. uh, some of the, the, the modernist popes added some of their own stations and changed them a little bit. So could you mm. could you compare and contrast the traditional stations of the cross mm. with the new modernist version? Sure, Tom. Well, you're, you're pointing out that modernism is all about change. As, as Francis put it, change is the tradition of the church, indicating there's nothing is stable, everything changes. Stay, change is the one thing that is continuous and stable with regard to the, the church practices that are constantly changing evolving okay this is a kind of one dogma of modernism you know um so um they have changed the mass uh, nothing is sacred to, to them really they changed the rosary they um changed all the numbers of, of you know catholic practices one of them is the stations of the cross they couldn't let that stand without them making some sort of modernist statement or improvement, you know, as they like to consider it. Um, now, you know, if you look at the history of the stations, you, you find that uh, the, the stations began in their original form with the pilgrimages to the Holy Sepulchre. You know, the, the Catholic pilgrims would go to the Holy Land uh, even for the centuries when it was under uh, under Muslim control, they would travel to the Holy Land on pilgrimage, and they would go to Jerusalem, and they would follow the way of the cross. You know, in the Roman Forum of old, under the Roman Empire emperors, there was the so-called Via Sacra, in which the conquering generals would return with their troops, but also with their captives and with the loot. And there in the Roman Forum, they would be um, uh, praised by the crowds, the adoring crowds, and crowned by the emperors because of their military victories. Well, 
the the Via Sacra or the the sacred way actually for us is not the way through the Roman Forum due to a military victory. The Via Sacra is in Jerusalem, and it is the way that our Lord followed with his cross on the way to conquer the powers of hell and to rescue the captives from the power of Satan. Uh, Very different, very different holy way or sacred way, the Via Sacra. So the the pilgrims to Jerusalem had the sense that they were following the true sacred way, the Via Sacra trodden by our Lord with the cross, not uh, drawing the blood of others in some um, bloodthirsty battle, but shedding his own blood for the redemption of mankind. And they found it to be a great uh, honor and privilege that God would permit them to actually come to that that area, that very spot on the face of the earth, and and follow in the footsteps of our, our Lord. And of course, they would follow all the way to Calvary. They would then uh, go on to the, the Holy Sepulchre, which was the great site of the resurrection of our Lord. And that would consummate their pilgrimage at the, uh, at the Holy Sepulchre. So um, when the Holy Land was reconquered, at least enough of it, so that there could be a a Catholic kingdom of Jerusalem for almost a century <clears throat> during the 12th century before it was uh, uh, again retaken by Saladin and his unified Islamic uh, rule right? um, you had the Franciscans who came to Jerusalem during that time and they tended the, the holy way, the, the way of the cross. And uh, pilgrims who came there found themselves taken care of by the Franciscans, and the holy places were being administered by the Franciscans and so on. And so the Franciscans became very much associated with uh, the, uh, the way of the cross. And uh, so we shouldn't be surprised to find um, that we often pray uh, prayers for the way of the cross uh, given uh, by St. Francis of Assisi himself. And um, we, we find um, that they, they also began to erect uh, model stations of the cross uh, in Europe, far from the Holy Land, far from Jerusalem, for people to follow. And uh, the popes would grant indulgences for those who couldn't make the pilgrimage to Jerusalem, <clears throat> they could spiritually follow the way of the cross, even in certain locales, wherever the, the way of the cross had been symbolically erected, often, as I say, under the, under the aegis of the uh, Franciscan order. And finally, it got to the point that this was so important to the Catholic people and so beneficial to the souls of real Christians that uh, it was allowed to erect these, as it were, this, this Via Sacra, this way of the cross in churches of Christendom, so that the people could gain the indulgences of making the way of the cross right in their own parish churches. And uh, there were 14 stations of the cross, uh, beginning with Jesus is condemned to death, and ending with the burial of our Lord in the Holy Sepulchre. And uh, the one thing that was required 
physically was not even a, a picture or a representation of the of the mystery of the station, the event of the station, but a wooden cross. The wooden cross is uh, embedded in the, let's say, in the walls of the church, uh, were the essential requirement to have the stations. Um, and with them, often you'd find the, the number of the station and the, the, the title of the station, but you wouldn't necessarily always have a, a picture that you would look at, you know, because people knew what it represented. And uh, they would follow then the way of the cross and follow the prayers that were uh, approved by the church for making that way of the cross. The way of the cross was always considered a penitential exercise. Remember, pilgrims who went to uh, uh, Jerusalem were going there as a penitential exercise. They were going there not as tourists. They were performing a religious mission there in reparation for their sins, <clears throat> uh, pleading for God's mercy for themselves and for their loved ones. So they were all on a serious mission. Uh, in the old days, you know, talking about a thousand miles easily, maybe, you know, depending on where they were in Europe, well, 2,000 miles or more. Uh, on foot, you know, if those who are well-to-do might have catch a mule, right? But uh, it was a long way to go, and they could expect there to be hunger. They could expect to have uh, calluses on their feet. Um, even the, the, uh, the religious orders that were established to care for pilgrims along the way uh, were known as the hospitalers, and um, they gave hospice. Uh, uh, they, they took care of the sick and the fallen and the uh, injured on the way. And eventually they uh, became, they grew into the orders of the knights who would not only uh, nurse the sick to health, but also would fight for them and defend them and protect them. Um, even the Crusades, I mean, the Crusades began uh, with the announcement of uh, Pope Urban II in 1094 at Clermont in France, and it was preached by Bernard of, uh, Saint Bernard of Clairvaux. But even the, the, we think of the uh, Crusaders as being soldiers, and uh, the Crusaders actually were first and foremost pilgrims. They had the cross, signifying that they were pilgrims, not that they were soldiers, they were pilgrims. And they were going to go, and if necessary, fight their way to the holy places, and fight their way through um, the, the kingdoms of the Seljuk Turks that had come from the steppes of Russia to dominate Arabia and Palestine, as we know now and so on. And they were very warlike, um, these Seljuk Turks. You know. So, but the Crusaders considered themselves uh, warriors, but even before that, they considered themselves pilgrims. They were going there for the sake of the indulgence. They were going there for the sake as a religious exercise, actually. And uh, that not only gave them strength uh, as, let's say, a soldier on their waters and on the march, but it gave them idea as pilgrims, they were there to make sacrifices. They were there to, to endure the hardships, and they were going to do it as a labor of love not uh, as, a, as an act of belligerence or anything like that, or militants, but as an act of love for God. It was a service to our Lord. So this, this pilgrimage part was very, very important. And so when we make the, the Stations of the Cross today, we should remember that. 
We should remember our ancestors in the faith who actually made that long, arduous pilgrimage to Jerusalem to walk in the steps of our Lord, and that we have the privilege here that the Church has given us through a tradition to, in a sense, in a sense follow their footsteps and following Christ's footsteps, even in our own parish churches. Stations of the cross have to be officially erected. Um, uh, but the bishop, the bishop of the diocese, actually, uh, is, as I understand, ordinarily the one who has to, you know, enable them to be officially erected, traditionally. Okay. Now, in the old churches, um, as they've been defiled by the Novus Ordo and so on, um, you know, one, one have they destroyed that? I, I, I'd like to think not. Right. <laughs> I, um, but I'll, I'll tell you, they have not only uh, brought in part of the Novus Ordo, the new mass, they've also brought in the new stations. And this is what you were alluding to at the beginning, that they added a 15th station. Um, and the 15th station is the resurrection. And so the penitential exercise of following the stations to our Lord's death and burial with the anticipation of the resurrection of our Lord. And that whole idea has been kind of broken up in the sense that people now go through the stations and they end up on Easter Sunday with the resurrection. The whole idea of leaving that 14th station with the body of our Lord buried there in the sepulcher is, uh, has been lost. <laughs> does this actually fit the pattern of the Novus Ordo? Yes, it does. I mean, look at the so-called crucifixes they have. Uh, if they have a recognizable corpus or body of our Lord, it's almost like he's detached from the cross. He's floating apart from the cross. He's not affixed to the cross. He's not suffering. He's not dying there. Our Lord's death on the cross is not, is not pictured there. It is the resurrection. Right? And... Um, it is, uh, it is a theme of the Novus Ordo because they consider that modern man really wants to leave behind that whole idea of suffering and sacrifice and move on and just focus on the, the triumphal resurrection of Christ. Um, Protestantism long ago took Christ off the cross and just you'd have the bare cross with a cloth hanging there signifying the resurrection. That's where modernism wants to go. That's where it went with the Protestant revolution of the 1500s. And that's where the modernists want to take the Catholic Church today. And by and large, they have taken the, many of the Catholic people, the vast majority of them, off in that direction. And yet there are many of those people who still, they, they, they still at least feel uncomfortable because they know there's something wrong. Even in their modernist churches, as, as try as they might to convince themselves that everything is okay, they know deep down because they, many of these people still have the faith. They still have the traditional faith. And they know deep down there's something wrong here, but they can't put their finger on it. So we really have to pray for them. Um, in any case, um, you know, the Novus Ordo has changed the Stations of the Cross. I'm sure they've changed the prayers, too. I haven't seen a Novus Ordo Station of the Cross, but I'm sure, I, I doubt the Novus Ordo are, are following the prayers of St. Ignatius uh, I'm sorry, St. Alphonsus Liguori, St. Uh, Francis of Assisi. They've got some newfangled, modernized prayers with modernized language to follow the stations of the cross that probably very much to do with global warming, climate change, uh, e e you know, ecology recycling, and who knows what else. 
um, politically correct, yeah. right? social conscience type of stuff. Um, so the, the poor people are being starved spiritually, these things. Um, so I, I doubt that there are many uh, of the modern uh, parishes with the name Catholic on the side even that really do make the honest-to-goodness Catholic Stations of the Cross. Uh, we do, of course. Uh, traditional Catholics always yeah. held to the traditional, the traditional way of the cross, and so we always will, by sure. the grace of God. Father, I, I read before that next to the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass that the Stations of the Cross are, are the most beneficial <coughs> devotion, the, uh, the most powerful <coughs> prayer that a Catholic can pray. Would you say that that is accurate? Well, uh, to compare them, I don't know. The rosary is very powerful also as a devotion, right? It's, it's what our Lord has asked for through Our Lady. Um, uh, I, to compare the stations with the rosary, um, the stations have an ancient and venerable history, but so does the rosary. Um, can one really take the stations apart from the rosary or the rosary apart from the stations? Both of them actually are meditations on the life of Christ, right. the life and death and sufferings of our Lord, right? Um, so um, the difference would be that the one difference, I mean, there are indulgences for praying the rosary, there are indulgences for praying the stations, too. But the, the, the stations are essentially a penitential exercise. <clears throat> the rosary is not essentially a penitential exercise, at least I've never heard that it was classified as such, you know? So, um, I, I don't know. I, I haven't really heard any of the great spiritual writers, mm -hmm. that I have exhausted knowledge of them, of course, um, compare the rosary to the stations. So, I, I just don't mm -hmm. really know. Perhaps some of our readers have come across statements by very deep uh, and approved spiritual writers of the church who do analyze that and come up with some kind of verdict. Mm -hmm. But I don't know that the church itself has ever has ever said, well, you know, if, if the rosary is a seven, the station of the cross are a nine, and of course the mass is a ten, I, I don't know, <laughs> on, the, yeah. on the holiness scale. Yeah. The mass obviously comes first, because there you have the real presence of our, our Lord in the Blessed Sacrament. Right. Um, so, um, and who puts the sacrifice of the Calvary right there on the altar before us, you know, mm -hmm. obviously that comes first. All other devotions are all directed toward that holy sacrifice. And Father, it seems that there's rightly so an emphasis on the stations of the cross during the Lenten season. But is are the stations reserved uh, specifically for Lenten tide, or is this something uh, a devotion that can, can be performed this is, year, year round? This should, can be performed performed all year round. Mm -hmm. Actually, it should be part of uh, Catholic's life throughout the year. Yeah. The Rosary, a meditation on the life, death, and resurrection of our Lord, uh, is a part of our daily life. And certainly, um, uh, even as a penitential exercise, it's, it's certainly almost de rigueur during Lent that a Catholic would devote himself to the Stations of the Cross. If, if at any time throughout the year he's going to pray, that would be the time to pray the Stations of the Cross. But really, he's supposed to be in, in, engaged in the penitential exercise throughout the entire, throughout the year, mm -hmm. you know, not just during Lent. So it's important that he pray the stations. We actually uh, have them uh, online. I mean, uh, the seminary has recorded the Stations of the Cross. I also have recorded the Stations of the Cross, uh, as you know, and I, I don't know if we have them here on what Catholics believe. 
I believe we do, actually. We do. Good. So it can be access to the What Catholics Believe website. And I'm glad to hear that. So even at home, you know, uh, those who are our listeners could actually uh, follow the Stations of the Cross daily daily Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. with us. And and invite them to do so. Yeah. And and talking about praying praying year round and and not just only only during the Lenten season, I think. the two versions that we most commonly use, the, the St. Francis of, of Assisi and St. Alphonsus of the Glory, mm-hmm. I think there's there's so many great uh, Catholic truths in there from both of those mm-hmm. that, that, that apply to, to all of Catholicism. In particular, I know in, uh, in St. Francis of Assisi, in his, in his mm-hmm. version, he, he, in all of the prayers, continuously uh, speaks of himself as just the, this terrible, terrible sinner, just the, mm-hmm. the, the worst of the worst. And it's just mm-hmm. astounding to hear him. Mean, he's one of the greatest saints mm-hmm. in the history of, of the church, mm-hmm. and he's referring to himself as just this, this miserable, wretched sinner. But the, but the thing is, he means it. Yeah. And it's obvious. Mm-hmm. You, 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 you yeah. can't miss the fact that he's not just being pious. Yeah. Uh, he he's quite sincere about it, mm-hmm. and, uh, and and wants I, to be thought of that. Way. I've I've read before that uh, that that some have said that that Saint Francis of Assisi actually uh, inherited the throne in heaven that was intended for Lucifer, and Lucifer lost this throne by his pride. But Saint Francis, through his humil- through his humility, rose rose to that to that throne. But also on in the other uh, the other the other version, Saint Saint Alphonsus the Gloria. I, I love how. Uh, I think with each one of his prayers for each of the stations, he ends it with some version of of, of the prayer of, I, I love thee, Jesus, my love, I repent of ever having offended thee. Never permit that I may offend thee again. Grant only that I may love thee always, and then do with me what thou wilt. And I think that's just the perfect expression of, of the entire spiritual life mm-hmm. right there. And, and just that, that one prayer it <clears throat> says everything. Well, our Lord in the Garden of Gethsemane, Father, not my will, but thy will be done. Mm-hmm. It echoes the words of our Lord. Mm-hmm. And our blessed mother, behold the handmaid of the Lord, be it done unto me according to thy word. Mm-hmm. So that first Saint Francis echoes Saint Alphonsus Liguori echoes that thought in the stations. Mm-hmm. And uh, so you can see they're very powerful, mm-hmm. uh, spiritually powerful, uh, not only in terms of the the indulgences that are accorded by them, but the graces that come through them and the thoughts expressed in them. Um, you know, as we make the station of the cross, it's it's something that we should we should bear in mind as we're praying the prayers that I mean we're standing as it were shoulder to shoulder with our blessed mother and Saint John as, as we're following our Lord on this way we, we think of ourselves on a way on a, on a, uh, with them on the way to Calvary and uh, yeah again you know, accompanying maybe even in some way assisting the Blessed Mother and St. John in, in carrying the body of our Lord, uh, taken from the cross to, to the sepulcher. You know? mm-hmm. So we should really be engaged, just as during the rosary, we should be uh, engaged in the mystery by almost, as it were, stepping into the mystery ourselves and uh, not just standing back as though we're mere observers, but actually as though we're actively engaged uh, with the um, the principal actors, as it were, our Lord, our Blessed Mother, and so on. So, uh, yeah, the, the stations should actually draw us in, you know, as as though you were praying the stations, and suddenly you found yourself, you know, being transported there to actually take an active part in the in the event itself. Mm-hmm. 
All right. Well, Father, let's move on to another email here. This viewer asked if I attend an Unicum Mass where they include Francis I as Pope, am I committing a mortal sin? Father Chicada says I would indeed be committing a sin because I am indeed in union with the person in the chair of Peter when Francis's name is placed in the canon. Mm-hmm. Well, um, let's put it this way again. If someone is truly convinced, right, I mean absolutely convinced, and there's no doubt in his mind that Francis is not a true Catholic Pope, cannot be a true Catholic Pope, then clearly if he goes to a liturgy which professes him to be the Pope and is in union with him, explicitly in union with him, then, you know, he would be um, violating his own conscience in going to it. Uh, and he'd have to consider himself to be basically not only violating his conscience, but being scandal and professing something to be Catholic that he knows isn't really not. That is in union with as someone who is a non-pope, right? And professes, professes him to be such. You know? So, I mean, the schism is not just a matter of denying, uh, denying, let's say, the recognition of the authority or refusing to accept the authority of a, a, a known and accepted Pope who is really, truly the Vicar of Christ on Earth. But schism would also be following someone who's not truly a Pope and ascribing those, the, the, that authority to someone who doesn't have it and doesn't hold it. That, that, that. Now, knowingly, knowingly so. You know? We have to remember that during the Great Western Schism, because of the confusion, when you had only one true pope. I mean, you can only have one true pope. You can have, there are times you have no pope. I mean, there have been 267 times. There's just, there has been not a pope. A pope has died, and a day, or a week, or a month, or a year, or even almost three years can pass before another pope is elected. During that time, the church carries on. She's still every bit as much the church as she was when there was a reigning pope, even a saint. It doesn't change the nature of the church or the, the value of the church itself, you know, the power of the church itself. So during, during this time, there was a true pope, and he was in Rome, okay, and he had successors. Um, we're talking about the 1300s. But there was a false pope in uh, Avignon, France, and then there became another false pope uh, in Pisa, and... Um, and there were people who were so confused, they, they were following these different false popes. But they, you know, they had reason to believe that the Pope in Avignon was the real Pope, and others, others had reason to believe that the, the one in Pisa might be the true Pope. They had reasons that they could allege and arguments in their favor. We now know, by the grace of God, because this was resolved in God's own way, by God's own grace, so that uh, we know that everything kind of came, all these people came back together again with Martin V, okay, in the early 1400s, <clears throat> who was a great pope, actually, and everyone recognized that. Uh, he was just the man at the right time, raised by God, to do exactly that. And uh, we need uh, not Martin V right now, but anyway, or, or even better. <laughs> but in any case, um, um, but because these people were really confused and because they had some kind of rational explanation, 
And they, they, they thought that they were following the person whom they, they really believed was a true pope, as far as they could tell, the best information they had or thought they had. The church never regarded them as schismatics. There was no, more form, no formal rejection of one they knew to be the true pope, no formal uh, acceptance or homage given to uh, someone they, they knew to be a false pope. Okay? The, the case we're mentioning here, though, is of a writer who says, if, I mean, it sounds to me as though he's saying, <clears throat> I don't believe that Francis is the Pope, I'm convinced he's not. So can I just go, and uh, can I go, let's say, even assuming that those who say this, who invoke him, are of goodwill, and they mean, they mean well. <clears throat> um, I, I'm not so sure that... Uh, one would necessarily, well, commit a mortal sin, I believe so. I think one would have an obligation, though, to make it clear where he stood. They don't believe that. I accept that, you know, you might, but I don't. Um, you know, here's what I'm thinking, okay? Again, because of the confusion today, and even in spite of the fact that Francis is... The rebel that he is, the, the revolutionary leftist Marxist socialist that, that he is, okay? And he makes no not really attempt to hide it, honestly. Um, go back to the time, again, we're traditional. We look at the church's tradition, we look at our history. St. Uh, Catherine of Siena recognized the true Pope in Rome. St. Vincent Ferrer recognized a false pope in Avignon. If St. Vincent Ferrer had gone to Mass with St. Catherine of Siena, and they attended Mass together, whether it was in Siena, in Avignon, or in Rome, which one of them would, be, would have been committing mortal sin? I don't know. Would either one of them have become... Did the church ever say that, okay, either one of them was committing mortal sin? Not that I know of, you know, not that I know of. So um, I, I think it's very important that we look back and examine these things because we are traditional, and that's what we go by, the church's tradition. How did she actually judge these things? For You know, it just it might seem off the point, but it's an illustration of what I'm trying to say here. That is, there are those who say... You know, all these Catholic, these traditional Catholic priests have confessions and they're giving sermons and doing all these things that, you know, they, they really can't be doing under the circumstances. But, but go back to the great Western schism when people were doing these things and acting in the name, you know, of even when we know to be actually false popes, okay? Not recognizing and not recognized by the true pope in Rome, right? The successors of Urban the Sixth. After this, this all came together again by the divine providence, <clears throat> did Martin V say, okay, all of those marriages that were done <clears throat> by all of those priests, under all of those bishops who followed these wrong popes, all of these marriages are null and void. All of those confessions are null and void. Is that what he said? There's no record of <laughs> anything like that. Did he depose them all? I mean, because of the confusion. They just, they just didn't know. So, 
you know, for those people who want to pontificate and say, oh, you know, the traditionalists, because they're having these marriages, because they're doing this, they're all null and void. Well, uh, you know, as far as I'm concerned, they, they, they can express all the opinion they want, but that's all it is. It doesn't amount to any more than that. And often it's just a matter of prejudice on their part. Mm. But in fact, if you go back then, you find the church didn't annul, nullify all those marriages that were performed um, in the midst of this confusion. Uh, didn't say all those confessions were invalid because they didn't have faculties from true clergy recognized by a true pope. It's because of the confusion of the times. Now, modernism has brought about a confusion which is much more significant than the confusion back then. Mm -hmm. The modernists are the, 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 not only the world champion masters of confusion, they are, they are like emissaries of hell in terms of the diabolical disorientation that Our Lady predicted at Fatima. So uh, I think we have to be kind of careful about, about this kind of thing. And when, when this man asks, would I be committing a mortal sin if I went? And um, I, I, would, I would say to him, look, if you realize, and I want to ask him a few questions, I guess, to find out what he's, what he's, where he's coming from on this. But if in going to this Unakum Mass, um, he was going to a liturgy that was actually um, part of Francis's Novus Ordo Church, and it was like the Novus Ordo flavor of modern modernism. Okay, just window dressing for modernism to keep people like him, you know, in the in the showcase. Um, I would say he's he's certainly giving scandal. He's misleading people. He's, uh, and that would be simple for him to knowingly and willingly do that, okay? But I would say if he recognizes that there is a doubt about this, and so far as, as much as he's convinced that Francis is not the Pope, uh, he cannot dogmatically state that because he's not the Pope and he doesn't have the power to make a dogma, okay, demanding that everybody agree with him mm -hmm. and excommunicate everybody who doesn't agree, excommunicate everybody who doesn't agree. He doesn't have that power. He doesn't have the right. He doesn't have the, the authority. As I've said before, I am logically convinced that Francis is not the Pope because I'm logically convinced he doesn't have the faith. I'm convinced he doesn't even believe in the papacy to begin with. So he couldn't possibly have, have knowingly and uh, formally accepted the office of the papacy. He doesn't even believe in it, as Catholics have it. Okay. But as convinced as I might be that Francis is not the Pope, and even can't be, I know I'm not the Pope. I'm not the Pope. None of that will make me the Pope. I do not have the prerogatives of the Pope. I don't have the authority of the Pope. I can't make dogmatic pronouncements, okay? I can, I can uh, give what I think are logical conclusions, theological conclusions, but I can't make dogmas out of them. Sorry, and I can't. And neither can they, anybody else. See? And so what I'm coming down to, I think we have to be very careful. Uh, if, this, if this man, uh, I would tell him he shouldn't go, okay? I would tell him I, I, he shouldn't go, and I would give him all the reasons why he shouldn't go. I just think it's really pushing the envelope to say, if you go, you're committing a mortal sin. Mm -hmm. Not quite ready to say that yet myself. <laughs> I don't know that I could in good conscience tell him that. Okay. 
Fair enough. At least not just because they use Francis's name. Mm -hmm. You know, there might well be other things going on that okay. make it necessary. Uh, well, Father, I thought this next question was, was rather interesting here. This viewer says, Our Lady of Fatima promised Sister Lucy salvation, and she stayed in the Novus Ordo until her death in 2005. So does the life of Sister Lucy charter a path to salvation within the Novus Ordo? No. Okay. <laughs> oh, <laughs> there's more. Uh, well, you know, um, let's, apart from the idea of whether Ibenidian is Sister Lucy, okay, yeah. because there's actually a significant school of thought that the one who was basically brought out by the John Paul II and so on is not really Sister Lucy, not Lucia de Santos, um, but was another person. Uh, who was basically masqueraded or paraded as, as her to try to somehow lend legitimacy to the Novus Ordo so she accepted it so it must be okay with heaven because it's okay with Sister Lucia, right? Now, as far-fetched as that might seem, it's certainly within the realm of possibility knowing who the modernists are. Why would they not do that? We're familiar with the duplicitous of modernists. The duplicity of modernists is unbounded. Okay? We can't really put anything past them. If they would do this, if they would do what they did to the Mass, if they would do what they did to the whole church and with the revolution they've carried off there, if they would do what they did, therefore, to Christ himself, which is really what they've attacked here, they've attacked our Lord. What is this in comparison with all of that? I mean, this is like, it makes perfect sense. Yeah, they'd be foolish not to do that. They can get away with it. And they think they can get away with just about anything right now. So, uh, you know, there was a time when I would have immediately just scoffed at that whole idea and said, no, come on, that's really far-fetched. No, I'm not so sure. It's, it's sort of like, you know, hearing it, you know, when someone tells you that an abortionist lied, yeah. And you think, well, that blatant lie, how could, how could someone tell such a shameless, blatant lie? And then you remember, well, wait a minute, these people kill babies, mm -hmm. you know, and they're all in favor of it. They think it's wonderful. They applaud it. Killing babies. I think that... The, so, you know, why not lie? Yeah. The, What's that? The perfect example of that is, is with, uh, I, I think, with, with Bill Clinton and what happened with his uh, perjury scandal on how there was such a deal made of that, you know, how can someone do this? And here you have someone who, who's staunchly pro-abortion and, and all these other things that are yeah. ten times worse than, than this, this, this lie, you know? Yeah. Um, well, I mean, for people like that, the bigger the lie, the better. Yeah. <laughs> it's almost like I saw a badge of honor, unfortunately, yeah. I'm sorry to say. Yeah. Um, so uh, the same with the modernists. I mean, if they could pull that off, well, uh, why not? It serves their purpose. Anything that serves their purpose is... As far as I'm concerned, fair game. But uh, in any case, um, the Blessed Mother did tell us, Lucia, okay, that she would save her soul, ultimately, uh, according to the records of, our, of what Our Lady said at Fatima. But I'll tell you one thing. The question is not whether Lucy... It, let's assume, which is a big assumption, I think, at this point, that the sister Lucia, who was in the convent, cloister convent, and who did come out to, you know, present her, present her to the world as Sister Lucia during the Nova Servo time, okay? Um, 
let's say she died and saved her soul and she was within the Novus Ordo. The question is not whether the Novus Ordo was Sister Lucia's path to heaven. The question is whether she could, not whether she could be saved by the Novus Ordo, but whether she could be saved in sight in spite of it. And if she kept the true faith and practiced the true faith as well as she could possibly know. And let's face it, could seers make mistakes? Genuine seers? Yes. The church has always recognized that. The genuine seers can be chosen by God to deliver a certain message, but they can be mistaken about many things. Mm-hmm. And the church says not everything they say or do is infallible. Just as if you have a true pope, not everything he says or does is infallible. Yeah. He's infallible for a particular reason at particular times under certain circumstances. And after that, he's just as infallible as any one of us. So, um, you know, the fact that Lucia, if it was, in fact, the same Lucia de Santos who uh, saw and heard our Blessed Mother in Fatima in 1917, uh, could be taken in by a Novus Ordo in a cloistered convent and, you know, uh, maybe not even change her habit and just carry on a certain way of life and go along, and especially if she's cloistered. And just think, well, okay, you know, this is just we're just continuing along the same lines. Is it possible? Sure, it's possible. It doesn't doesn't mean that she saved her soul by that. It would mean really that she saved her soul in spite of it. You you just mentioned Saint Saint Fer, Vincent Ferrer too. How he was, um, you know, paying paying homage to a to a false pope, yeah. and so even the even the greatest sure. saints can commit yeah, mistakes. That's a good example. Uh, the, another question here in the same email, this viewer asked... By the, by the way, Tom, it, pursuant to this whole thing about whether it's a real Sister Lucia, yeah. something really struck a strange chord with me. And that is, um, John Paul II, whom they now call saint and great and everything, uh, even though he was he was a modernist, there's no doubt about it. Question. He gave a legitimacy to modernism. Um, he was just what the modernists needed at that time to sort of uh, consolidate their their power and their gains. Well, he, he was going to visit Fatima toward the end of his tenure. And the story was, and this is common, this is, you know, publicly reported, that Sister Lucia asked to see him when he came to Fatima. And the answer was, no, I can't see you, I'm too busy. Does that sound right to you? <laughs> no. Doesn't that sound strange? Yeah. You know? This was reported in the, in, the, in the press that had no reason to disguise it, you know, or to fabricate such a story. So, you know, with the assumption that this is accurate, I'm sorry, but there, there are things that just don't add up in this uh, whole sister, Lucia, Fatima, John Paul II situation. Yeah. Yeah. Go ahead, I'm sorry. No, I, I like how you um, how you, you mentioned, you know, they if they, they make these changes to the mass and, and all of this, I mean what is what is this creating a new a new uh, uh, an imposter? Uh, yeah. uh, Lucy, what is that in comparison to, to changing the mass? But I think this is just such a, a striking example of uh, j- just a different way to see things and it just makes you it just makes you wonder. I mean this is just absolutely demonic to do something like this. Like, that's just, just pure, pure evil, just um, yeah. almost, almost defies the imagination. But and the sad part, there are people of goodwill who are caught up in it. Yeah. And they, they're lost. They don't mm-hmm. know what to do with it. Yeah, it's very sad. 
Uh, well, this this in the same email file, I wanted to get to this question real quick. This, he asked, uh, what which catechism book do you prescribe to your parishioners? I purchased the catechism summary that you displayed in the catechism uh, video series that you did here on this channel, but I'm interested in a more complete catechism reference. My Catholic Faith uh, by Bishop Morrow is a very good catechism. Mm -hmm. uh, the sisters in Roundtop, the Daughters of Mary, have reprinted that. And it's actually available at a fairly good price. I think it's $25. It's a fairly, it's a very substantial volume. And um, in paperback, that is. So I know uh, that, that can be obtained from the, the uh, St. Joseph's Novitiate of the Daughters of Mary, Mother of Our Savior in Mount Top, New York. Okay. Um, isolated my copies might be able to be found on other books, sites, um, probably at great expense. Um, um, you know, if one really, really wanted to learn the Catholic faith uh, by going right back to the source of the other catechisms, one could go to the Catechism of the Council of Trent and uh, read through the Catechism of the Council of Trent. That would be the, I'd say, the top level study for anyone who wanted to know the faith. Well, Father, we've got a few minutes left, so if we could quickly go, go through this one last email we've, we've had for a while now. Uh, this is from a viewer all the way in Australia who uh, apparently is a teacher in the Novus Ordo education system there. And uh, he, he writes about this, uh, this practice that's being mandated in the Novus Ordo uh, curriculum there where the, uh, where the teachers are mandated to, to practice this kind of religious meditation they call it with, with their students, and he, he gives a uh, description over here where he says, teachers direct their students to sit in an upright position, either in a chair or on the floor with their legs crossed, close their eyes, concentrate on their breathing, and repeat a mantra in their heads. The popular mantra re recommended is Maranatha, repeated slowly in its syllables. The teachers are consistently assured that this type of meditation is Christian, but I always believe that meditation is certainly a part of traditional Catholic prayer when we meditate, for instance, on the mystery of the rosaries or some part of scripture, but that is not mentioned in these Novus Ordo programs. So, Father, what are your thoughts regarding this meditation? What, would you, what advice would you have for someone in this situation who's, who's being mandated to, to perform the, this get, practice? Get away from them. Just, just, they should just get out of there. They should get away from all this whole, whatever, the, whatever they're involved <laughs> with there, they should just... Uh, they should just uh, go away and not, not be involved in this. Yeah. I mean, sitting on the floor, sitting upright with your legs crossed and your eyes closed, concentrating on your breathing. I mean, all of this stuff is this Eastern mysticism stuff, you know? Mm -hmm. and, uh, and, and even the idea of a mantra. I don't care if they give you the name of our Lord himself to repeat over and over again as your mantra. <clears throat> It's not, it's not a Catholic practice, it's not a Christian practice. It's not, it is Eastern mysticism translated into, uh, given merely a, um, a, a veneer of something Christian. Mm -hmm. no, that's all it is. He, he, uh, so. he says this in, in the email, Father, how this, this seems, uh, he says that it's, it has an unpleasant Eastern odor like that of, of Buddhism. Oh, yeah. But he says that, that the... The Novus Ordo hierarchy there, they constantly assure them that this is a Christian practice. Well, that's what the Novus Ordo is going to do, of course, because, again, they misrepresent things. They, they, they lie. Uh, you know, often it's not really a matter of being mistaken. They're out and out deceiving people. 
I mean, like hand communion. You, you, when when the bishops back when were trying to convince the Catholic people to go in for hand communion, this is when the customary practice was, to, you know, even among them, to put the host on the tongue. They put out brochures and they quoted uh, Saint Cyril of Jerusalem. Uh, saying, put your hand out, put your hand out of your hand, put the host in your hand, take it and put it in your mouth. They say, oh, look, this goes back to the uh, middle of the third, the fourth century, must be Catholic. You know? I mean, the saint, Cyril of Jerusalem, Bishop of Jerusalem, Patriarch of Jerusalem, what could be better than that? From the Mystagogica Catechesis, number five, right? How Catholic can you get? Until you, you discover what they knew, what they certainly knew. If they didn't know, there's a real problem, too, if they didn't know this. That that comes as part of the mystagogical catechesis that was not the work of St. Cyril of Jerusalem, but by his successor on the throne, who was actually a semi-Aryan heretic. And if they just kept reading that part, they would come to the part about how you, you take the cup and you take, a, you take a drink from the cup, the chalice, then you, you wipe the moisture of the precious blood off your, off your mouth and you start rubbing it in your eyes and your face, your, your, your ears and so on. That was never a Catholic practice. But notice they cut that off. They don't tell you that part, even though it's the next sentence. They don't, cut, they don't tell you that part. Now, this is duplicitous, as they're saying. And uh, this is what they do. And they, yes, they're going to tell this man, oh, this is Catholic, this is perfectly Christian. Hey, listen, when the Nova Serva came in, there and I, re, I was there. Okay, is <laughs> kind of grounds, ground uh, central there, uh, whatever. When uh, in the Catholic schools, when they were bringing all this in, and they they brought in through Carl uh, Gustav Jung, uh, this this whole Eastern mystical stuff, you know, that like this, the, the mantra and the the, the uh, men. Uh, uh, what is it? Uh, I can't remember the necessary. <laughs> you know, the, the, the maze that you follow to find the other half of your soul uh, or whatever, all that stuff. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, um, look, Maranatha. Maranatha is a concluding word in, a concluding word in the book of the Apocalypse, okay? It is Aramaic. It can be translated, it depends on where you divide it into two words. It can mean either the, the Lord has come, which makes it like a statement of the creed, or it can mean come Lord, uh, like uh, an invocation to the Lord to come. And uh, often it is used, Maranatha, they use it as a come Lord Jesus, that is what they're trying to say. But it can also be a statement of faith, the Lord has come. Either way, to use it as a mantra, in some kind of Eastern Oriental mystical religious setting is not right. Um, <clears throat> it's almost hypnotic. And that's what the, that, that's kind of a hallmark of the Oriental mystical religions and even of the tribal religions in Africa with the, with the psych, with the drugs, uh, the mind-altering drugs, the furious beating of the drums, it's to create a kind of altered state of mind, okay? And that is true of this, the Eastern mystical religions also in their meditations, concentrate on the breathing, centering, you know, centering prayer. This is all part of that, that 
the propaganda of Eastern mysticism, which is so inimical to the Catholic faith, uh, because it focuses on the person. The person is focusing on what's going on inside, usually bodily. And they're focusing on, on, on what's happening here, and the person himself becomes the center of his own attention. He becomes the center of his focus. It's not a transcendent God, right, who created him. Now he's looking inward. Now he's centering everything upon his own existence and his own self-consciousness. And that is very dangerous stuff. Uh, that's what all this is about, all this stuff. You know, all this, uh, um, well, I call it Eastern, the Oriental mystical religions are all about that, focusing, focusing on oneself and one's own existence as though uh, that's, the, that's the center of everything. So uh, I had a, a dear friend who uh, was actually, I told this story before actually, some time ago, uh, was being cultivated to move up in a fairly large um, company. I, I won't get too specific here. It was just, uh, the company had to do with uh, medical devices and medical uh, supplies and so on. It was very, well, very big company anyway. Uh, he was marked to move into management and part of the program necessary for him to go through uh, to prove that he, he could accept the corporate culture was to go through a kind of meditation program. Uh, there are different names for it, right? Um, they had a, a variety of these things, uh, these meditation programs that were being introduced not only into the church, into the religious orders and congregations, but also into a corporate America, too. And uh, this man dutifully, dutifully went along. He was a fallen away Catholic at the time. But it made him very uncomfortable as he was given a mantra to chant and meditate. And uh, um, one day he actually talked to his mentor. He was assigned some kind of guide in all of this. Uh, and uh, the mentor confided in him what this was all about and told him the mantra was actually the name of a Hindu god. And when he chanted that mantra, he was invoking that Hindu god to come to him and serve as his spirit guide in the spirit world. Yes. Okay? So this is a, basically an invitation to a demonic influence and possibly even demonic possession. The, the mentor then uh, said that he, um, he himself had begun to astral project. Uh, austere is the Greek word for star. An astral project, uh, projection means the person's consciousness leaves the body and wanders through the world, even perhaps through the galaxy, for the universe, really, no, but just wander outside of the body. And uh, the, the fellow actually told the, uh, our, my dear friend, now deceased, God rest his soul, um, some of the experiences he had when he was astral projecting. He said when he came back to the body and reunited with his body, his body was cold, stone cold. And he said at this point he was afraid to, to leave again because he feared that the, the euphoria he experienced in his out-of-body experience and 
the coldness and the discomfort of the body when he came back to it would kind of make him not come back, that he would simply go away, <laughs> yeah, never return. And he wasn't ready to, to, to do that. Yeah. Um, so anyway, uh, with this information, my friend said, I'm, I'm out of here. <laughs> I want nothing to do. He was a fallen away Catholic, but he had at least enough, got enough common sense. If enough, but I think also his, his faith was still there. And he realized, this is wrong. This is the occult. I can have nothing to do with this. And this might have been an impetus for him to begin his way back to faith, the true faith. He, he, he died very... Uh, he died as a traditional Catholic, a very... Uh, serious traditional Catholic by the grace of God. I'm glad he didn't go just evaporating off into the uh, ionosphere or the whatever sphere. <laughs> um, but you know, all of this this Oriental mystical religion you know, stuff, all these Oriental practices, they are basically centering on kind of a void. You know, you go to um, you go to the object of their meditation. It's not the object of the meditation of Catholics. We regard God as the supreme being who made all things. He is infinite being. He is infinite act. He's infinite reality, right? Infinite existence. <laughs> what he is who is. Uh, you know, as, as he said, I am who I am. And so when we meditate, we're meditating on absolute perfection and infinite being, whereas the Orientals meditate on nothingness. They want to clear their mind. Even when they center and they focus on themselves, still there's the sense of just sort of this, this, this the nothingness void. You know? And they may find a certain peace in that, but it's a feast of the, fee, the, the peace of nothingness, the exact opposite of the fullness mm -hmm. of the mind and the heart with a God who knows and loves infinitely. That's not the focus of the, the, these mystical religions of the East. Uh, but exactly the opposite is, is their focus and what they want to attain, yeah. this total dissipation of being. <clears throat> That's diabolical. Definitely. And uh, I'd say he should not allow himself, e even if they gave him our Lord's own name, to chant over and over again. <clears throat> that is not. That is not the, the way. That is not what praying is. Mm -hmm. He would. He would be abusing, abusing the name of our Lord, to pretend to pray that way. Yeah. Um with the name of Christ. So, uh, you know, I, I just recommend that he go away from, get away from them. <laughs> sure. Pray the rosary. There you go. Well, thank you, Father. I think we could let you go with that. I know you've got a, a busy schedule ahead of you with, with uh, preparing for Ash Wednesday tomorrow and mm -hmm. St. Valentine's Day as well. So happy St. Valentine's Day. Well, I wish you the same. I wish you a blessed Lent to all of, our, all of our listeners. Mm -hmm. too. Yep. Thanks for your time tonight, Father. I appreciate You're it. You're welcome. Thank you. No Thanks to all of our viewers as well for watching this episode of What Catholics Believe. Until next time, we ask that you all remember the words of Our Lady of Fatima to consecrate yourselves and your families to the Immaculate Heart of Mary and to pray and do penance. Thank you and God bless you.